tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all, all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. These words were written by William Shakespeare in the play Macbeth, published 400 years ago. It's a dark and bleak speech that comes towards the end of a dark and bleak play. Macbeth's ambition had led him to great heights, becoming the king of Scotland, but at great cost. And now it was all falling apart, falling apart around him. His speech about the, the short and apparently meaningless nature of life is a fitting introduction to our text today, and indeed to all of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, we find another king who was looking around and having a hard time seeing why life is worth living. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes today. As you turn there in your Bibles, if you, if you open to the middle, you should be there in the Psalms. Just go a little bit to the right, past Proverbs, and you'll arrive at Ecclesiastes. As we read, prepare yourselves to encounter a book unlike any other in the rest of Scripture, though its text is often dark and bleak, like Macbeth. We believe it to be the Word of God. And as the Apostle Paul tells us, it was written for our instruction. Let's read. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting, it hurries back to the place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new? It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before, and of those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we might see wondrous things out of your word. Our souls cling to the dust. Give us life according to your word. Glorify yourself in us this morning. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you may already be thinking to yourself, what in the world are we doing studying this book? Some of you might be concerned about the pastor's spiritual well-being for choosing a book like this. What has made us depressed enough to turn to Ecclesiastes for comfort? One writer says Ecclesiastes is the only book of the Bible written on a Monday morning. <laughs> One might imagine Winnie the Pooh's friend Eeyore saying something like, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. Ecclesiastes is shockingly honest. Like some of what we find in the Psalms, it, it gives voice to some of the things we feel in our hearts on our worst days. You probably are not likely to find Ecclesiastes referenced on the t-shirts sold in Christian bookstores, like Travis talked about last week. Absolute futility is not something a lot of people want plastered across their chest. It's fitting that Ecclesiastes follows Proverbs in the Bible. Proverbs lays out a very formulaic view of life. Do this and you will prosper. Do not do this and you will suffer. Ecclesiastes comes and, and says something like, I, I've been through a lot, I've seen some things, and it seems to be more complicated than that. Not to say Proverbs is completely unambivalent. In Proverbs 26, Solomon instructs not to answer a fool according to his folly, or else you'll be just like him. And then in the following verse, Solomon instructs to answer a fool according to his folly, so that he won't be wise in his own eyes. So there are exceptions in the Proverbs, but Ecclesiastes specializes in the exceptions. It's a book full of whatabouts. That's why Ecclesiastes makes us uncomfortable, but it's also why it's a good and necessary kindness of the Lord to put it in his word. Because we are prone to wander. We are prone to ask, what about? And just like the Psalms, which provide us language uh, of lament, scriptures that we can speak in prayer to God, Ecclesiastes provides us with a biblical way of asking God, what is going on? In many ways, you can say that Ecclesiastes is the question to which the rest of the scripture provides the answer. Ecclesiastes asks, what's this all about? Why is life worth living? The Westminster Catechism wouldn't be written for a couple thousand years after Ecclesiastes, but the author of Ecclesiastes is more or less asking the question, what is the chief end of man? And in his own way, he arrives at the same answer as the rest of the Bible, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Thomas Edison was once asked about how it felt to fail so many times in making the light bulb. He famously replied, I haven't failed, I've just found a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. Ecclesiastes finds a thousand ways to not be satisfied in life. So as we begin this series and, and prepare to spend a couple of months with this book, I want to encourage you that though this book is unique, though you might find it difficult, Ecclesiastes is indeed Christian scripture. Your Bible would be incomplete without it. It provides insight into the heart of man and helps us understand what's going on in the world around us. We'll see today how this book actually lends us hope and strength to face the everyday trials. One last uh, point before I, I jump into the text 
I want to discuss the, the authorship of Ecclesiastes. As is the case with basically every book of the Bible, the authorship of Ecclesiastes was something that was widely agreed upon up until a couple hundred years ago. The book is officially anonymous. It records the words of a teacher, the first verse of chapter 1 and the last few verses of chapter 12, talking about this teacher in the third person. There are several descriptions of this teacher, which at least strongly imply that we are meant to understand this to be Solomon, though his name is never mentioned. He is described as a wealthy, wise man, son of David, king in Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 12, the author identifies Solomon, or excuse me, the, the teacher as, as someone who studied and arranged many proverbs and taught the people knowledge. So while there is no shortage of ink spilled on the topic, it seems the most likely scenario is that Ecclesiastes represents the teaching of the person it says is teaching. Perhaps it was a later scribe compiling some of Solomon's teaching, but we are at the very least to take assumption that this is who is teaching us. Ultimately, whether written by Solomon, a, a scribe, or, or a later philosopher, we believe that these words are inspired by God, that they are profitable and therefore worthy of our attention and our study and our delight. So with all of that as preamble, let's turn to the text at hand. We'll spend a couple of minutes looking at the first two verses and then at the poem which follows. Verse 1 is an introduction to the teacher whom we've just discussed. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word translated teacher is the Hebrew word koheleth, referring to someone who gathers a group of people for the purpose of instruction. Your translation might call him the preacher. The title of the book is the Greek translation of the name koheleth. So we are introduced to the man called Ecclesiastes, and we learn that he is a son of David and king in Jerusalem. This guy is clearly a big deal. The stakes of this book have been ratcheted all the way up. We are about to learn from the man known as the preacher, the son of David, the king. His reputation as teacher of Israel is unparalleled. When he speaks, we do well to listen. So what has he got to say? Verse 2, absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. Yikes. Bit of a bummer of a sermon so far. Ecclesiastes wastes no time with a witting, witty or, or charming introduction. He provides no background or context. Just goes right for the pointlessness of it all. The word translated futility or, or vanity is literally a breath or a vapor. It appears five times in this verse alone. Vapor of vapors, says the teacher. Vapor of vapors. Everything is a vapor. And that idea of vapor is going to be very significant throughout the book. It appears 38 times in 12 chapters. It's the first recorded words of the teacher and also significantly the last recorded words of the teacher in chapter 12. As he ends his teaching, he repeats, vapor of vapors, all is a vapor. So we're left with this mystery. What does it mean to be a vapor? Different translators have, have taken that Differently, the CSB translates it as futility. The King James and ESV call it vanity. NIV goes with meaningless. 
And this teacher is making this declaration in reference to his efforts to find the meaning of life. In what ways is life like a vapor? Elsewhere in Scripture, vapor is used to describe how fleeting life is. In the spring and autumn, there's often a vapor covering the ground, and it's burned away as the sun rises or chased away by the wind. In the same way, we'll, remark, we'll see the, the teacher remark how abruptly life ends. Vapors are also illusions. They appear solid, but we can pass through them. And the closer you get, the further away they seem to be. In the same way, things in this world are not always what they appear. Life, the wisdom we need to live, is always just a little further than we think. So vapors are fleeting, they're illusions, and finally, they are mysterious. They obscure what should be plain, and they are beyond our control. And this is a theme also used throughout the book, often expressed with the, the phrase, chasing the wind. Solomon says, you are as likely to find the meaning of life as you are to catch the wind and direct it where you want it to go. So here we are, two verses deep into the book, and it seems we're headed down a pretty troublesome path. We've been introduced to this great philosopher king who has chosen to share with us his wisdom, and all we've got thus far is that life is vain and futile and mysterious. And then we come to a poem. Well, not a happy poem. But in this poem, the teacher begins to unlock the meaning of Ecclesiastes. He shows us what is the scope of his study, life under the sun, and he gives a preview of his conclusion. As we consider the rest of these verses, I do actually have an outline. We'll look at verses 3 through 11 and observe three qualities of life under the sun. Three qualities of life under the sun. The first is that life under the sun produces no gain. Life under the sun produces no gain. Verse 3 asks the question, what does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? This serves as a framing question for the rest of this passage and, and indeed for the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about work. The word appears over 26 times. And the word labor appears another 13 times. And the testimony of the book is clear. If you're working for wealth or gain, your work is in vain. Flip over to chapter 2, starting in verse 18. The teacher says, I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too was futile. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it, this too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is futile. Anyone who's ever had a bad day at work can relate. Anyone who's ever thought, they're not paying me enough for this, understands. Not only that, but as the teacher observes here, someone else often enjoys the benefit of our labor. 
I work my whole life, and then I die, and I don't get to keep any of my money? This theme reverberates throughout the book. The rewards of labor aren't worth the toil. There's no lasting gain to be had. What I have said so far about work is just the application of what we read earlier from Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. God tells Adam, the ground's cursed because of you. You'll eat by means of painful labor. It will produce thorns and thistles. You'll eat the plants. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. So we see here the the pain and futility of this kind of work. You're going to work all your life just for some bread and plants to eat, and then you die. And you get put in the ground, and the whole process starts over. So what are we to say then? Is, Is work evil? Should we try to avoid it and seek to work as little as possible? Well, no, we know that cannot be the case. Work, after all, is not a result of the fall. It is not part of the curse. In Genesis 2, God makes Adam, and God plants the Garden of Eden, and then we're told the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. So work is God's idea. It existed before the fall. It's part of his good design. Multiple times, even in Ecclesiastes, the teacher tells us that it is good to labor. He tells us that to eat and drink and enjoy one's work is a gift from God. I've tried to teach my children that to work hard at work worth doing is its own reward. And when we work to help one another, to improve the lives of our family, friends, and neighbors, to create something beautiful, to ease suffering, we are imitating our Father. God worked when he created the world and looked upon his work and said it was good. So clearly, according to both Ecclesiastes and the wider testimony of Scripture, work in and of itself cannot be bad. But the pursuit of gain under the sun is shown to be futile by the teacher. And before we go any further, I want to take a few minutes to focus on that phrase, under the sun. The teacher asks, what does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? This phrase does not show up in any of the other verses of the Old Testament. No other book references under the sun. But here in Ecclesiastes, that phrase appears 29 times. Clearly, understanding this phrase is essential to understanding the meaning of the book as a whole. If we want to know what the teacher is teaching, we must grasp what it means when he says under the sun. Under the sun defines the scope of the teacher's study of the meaning of life. It serves both to broaden the scope and to narrow it. First, it broadens the scope to the entirety of human existence on the earth. Every aspect of our life occurs under the sun. Our work, our relationships, our pleasure, our pain, the beauty of a new child being brought into a family, the painful sting of death that separates us from those we love. Everything that's happened since Genesis 3 has happened under the sun. Ecclesiastes can be described as an exploration of the full extent of the fall and the curses. The enmity that arose between people, the difficulty of frustrating labor, and especially the separation from the presence of God. 
which leads me then to the narrowing effect of this phrase. So it's broadened to all of human existence on the earth, but it, it does have limits with regards to both space and time. He limits his study to the things happening on the earth and happening now. He's putting himself self in the shoes of a pagan. He's adopted a secular worldview and saying that if all that matters is what's happening on the earth right now, if there's nothing beyond the sun, nothing after we die, then the only logical conclusion is that it doesn't matter at all. Why should I work hard when I'm just going to die and not get to keep my money anyways? I had an atheist friend in college who said that life without end wouldn't have any meaning. But in fact, the opposite is true. If there is no eternity then the present doesn't matter at all. Let's look ahead to the very end of the book, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. We find the conclusion of the author in these words. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. The teacher shows us by exploring everything under the sun that there is no gain, no meaning to life if we only look under the sun. We must look beyond the sun for that answer. We, we find that nature itself preaches to us the fruitlessness of labor. And back in chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting, it hurries back to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning, goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Men live, men die, and the world keeps turning. The sun rises, the sun sets, and it pops right back up the next day. The wind blows and blows, especially around here, and yet it never achieves anything. Neither the sun nor the wind ever get where they're going. They just keep going in their cycles. The water Cycle is the same way. Streams sprout from the ground. They flow into rivers. Rivers join together and pour into the sea. And the sea never says, all right, that's quite enough. No, the water evaporates. It rains back on the ground, soaks down into the ground, and sprouts up into streams again. For all this work, the sun and the wind never get anywhere besides right back where they started. And the sea is never full. That brings me to my next point. We've seen that the life under the sun produces no gain. Next, we see that life under the sun provides no satisfaction. Just like the sea is never satisfied, neither are we as men and women. Verse 8, the teacher tells us, All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. Nothing in this world will ever satisfy you. No matter how long the rivers pour into the sea, it's never full. And no matter how much pleasure we attempt to get, 
from the world around us, we're always left wanting more. And this is not even uh, an insight unique to Christian scripture. Chinese philosopher Confucius taught, great as the universe is, man is yet not always satisfied with it. Ancient Roman philosopher Lucretius observed that while what we crave is lacking, it seems to transcend all the rest. Then when it has been gotten, we crave something else. This insatiable desire is common across continents and centuries, but only in Scripture do we find the solution. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, If I have desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Augustine, the great theologian of the early church, says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Let me ask each of you in this room, I want you to be honest with yourself. Where are you looking for satisfaction? There are the, the usual suspects, alcohol, sexual immorality, gossip. And then there are the sneaky ones, like perhaps a good reputation. It's a good thing, don't get me wrong, to have a good reputation, but it's a bad thing to live for the approval of others. Perhaps you're looking for travel or new experiences to provide you with satisfaction. Maybe you want to increase your knowledge as much as possible. All of these things are good. In fact, gifts from God. We should delight, delight in knowing and loving one another, living in community. We should delight in experiencing the world as God has created it, seeing his wonders. We should hope to learn and grow in wisdom and knowledge, especially knowledge of the things of God. All of these things are good and to be enjoyed in their proper place. It's when we put them in the place of God, who alone can satisfy, that we get in trouble. For instance, I really enjoy the, the Lifesavers mints. The little white things, we have them out in the lobby by the coffee. On any given Sunday, you can see my son grabbing a fistful on his way in. We have a jar of them at my work, and I help myself to them with regularity. And I enjoy them as mints. But if you and I were out on the ocean on a boat and I fall into the water and you were to toss me one of those mints, I'd be in serious trouble. I mean, I'd eat it, obviously. <laughs> My breath would be fresh as I sank to the ocean floor. For what it is, it's enjoyable. But it can't save me. The gifts of God have their place but they cannot save you. Pastor and author David Gibson has written a, a book on Ecclesiastes called Living Life Backward. It's pretty short, very easy to read. I'd recommend it to you all, especially if you want something to help you study over the next couple of months as we're preaching through this book. Gibson argues in that book that the message of Ecclesiastes is, to put it bluntly, you are going to die. And that is good news. He says it a bit more eloquently, writing, Ecclesiastes teaches us to live life backwards. It encourages us to take the one thing about our future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives, and to think about them from the perspective of the end. 
If I'm just trying to get as much pleasure and enjoyment out of the things of this life while I got a chance, if I'm just trying to, to smoke them while I got them, so to speak, I'll end up empty and frustrated, devastated. If I look to food and drink for my ultimate fulfillment, I'll end up broken. It's only when I put those things in their proper place, when I see them as what they are, a gift from God to be enjoyed, when I'm not looking to them for meaning or purpose or fulfillment, that I can truly enjoy them. Gibson says it this way, in the created world, we can only enjoy those things which we do not worship. So if we would be satisfied in life, then we must look to the life to come. That brings me to my final point. Life under the sun possesses no permanence. Life under the sun possesses no permanence. Looking at the last few verses of our, our text, verses 9 through 11. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can anyone say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before. And of those those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. This phrase, nothing new under the sun, has worked its way from Scripture into common speech, and for good reason. It's, It's one of those things which is obviously true. There are necessary caveats about advances in technology and technique which affect us every day. The most prevalent example is probably medical science, where some diseases have been entirely eradicated. Thanks be to God, the infant mortality rate has plummeted over the last couple hundred years. And yet those children that that live through infancy live in broken homes, or they live in a war-torn country. We have developed life-saving procedures to to repair an ailing heart, and yet we have no solution to true heartbreak. We have merely delayed death. We put a stopgap to suffering. But the human condition is the same as it ever was. Those who have power abuse it. The rich amass more and more wealth for themselves while the poor work themselves to death and starve. Some might also dispute the teacher's assertion that there is no remembrance of those who came before. We can look to American history and and point to significant figures. George Washington, Harriet Tubman, Abe Lincoln. We got the titans of industry, Carnegie and Rockefeller. Sure, those are some people whose whose names and, and achievements live on, but even those are not truly known. We merely have data about them. Much more so those without some historic accomplishments. I wonder how many people in this room can name all eight of their great-grandparents. These people are 12.5% responsible for your existence. Can you give me eight first names? What about their parents? Can you tell me what your great-grandparents did for a living, how they spent their time? Think about that for a second. Reflect on the fact 
that you are going to die, whether it's tomorrow or 70 years from now. And within three, maybe four generations, your name will be forgotten. There is no lasting gain under the sun. There's no true satisfaction under the sun. And we see there is no permanence here. C.T. Studd put it like this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What should we do? We, we live in the here and now for Christ. The Apostle John in his first letter to the church writes, The world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God will remain forever. Under the sun, life is futile and vain and fleeting and mysterious. But there is one who has come from beyond the sun. And from that country beyond the sun, he has brought meaning and depth and permanence and clarity and satisfaction and all the other things we so long for. Jesus says, I've brought life, not only life, but abundant life. He saw our sorry selves looking for meaning in all the wrong places, and he took pity on us. He took on frail flesh and showed us how to live. He says, I've got bread that will satisfy you for eternity. I've got water that will make you never thirst again. But he didn't take away pain. He didn't take away death. He didn't take away our sorrow and shame. At least, not yet. But he will. Revelation 21 shows the end of the story. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Everything sad will come untrue. There will be no need for the frustration and the grief that we feel in our daily life. A little further down in Revelation 21, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the land. Life under the sun has no gain, no satisfaction, no permanence, but there's coming a day when the sun won't be needed anymore. And all those who trust in Christ as their hope in life and death will gain eternal life. They will be satisfied in him, and they will live with God forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, because by it we are warned and instructed. Give us life according to your word. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.